Coming to you from Otter Creek Church in Nashville, Tennessee, it's Ask Science Mike Live! Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. I'm on tour supporting my new book, Finding God in the Waves, and we're in Nashville today. On October 14th, we'll be in Columbus. October 18th, Dunwoody, Georgia. October 25th, the Clergy Gathering in Central Florida. Kansas, November the 2nd, and after that, we'll be in Savannah. Three Los Angeles area shows, Portland, Seattle, Tacoma, Boston, Grand Rapids, and many more places. But we've got a show to do, so let's get it started. Okay, so my name is Shay. Hey, Shay. And um, a lot of mystics talk about the body being the barometer for um, emotional pain. And I'm curious through your transformation, how did Rob Bell talks about this a lot? How did your pain body speak to you, if at all? Hmm. Hmm. Man, we're starting like tough questions. Okay. <laughs> So a little peek behind the curtain. What I, people think I'm like really fast and spontaneous answering questions. I actually just rehearse an answer to every possible question ahead of time. And I haven't rehearsed that one. So I'm having to think, which is a real weird feeling. Yeah, so I, uh, I grew up in the Southern Baptist tradition, which is all about you know what you know, right? Uh, you, if you believe with your heart, which we actually mean your brain, these things, then you will be saved. And there's this cultural thing, not unique to the Southern Baptist faith, by the way, that's pretty common across Protestantism and even Christianity in general, is a minimization of emotional, the validity of our emotions, of our feelings. There's also kind of a demonization of things related to the body, right? Like about the same time guys figure out girls don't have cooties, they're told, like, by the way, your body is a sin machine. So, you know what I mean? Like, God is really, really disappointed if you experience physical pleasure, especially with sex, but with food. God help you if you dance. There is no way to be absolved from that kind of sin. Like, you know what I mean? Never have sex. It could lead to dancing. Like, that's kind of the Baptist <laughs> approach to morality. And over time, this divorces us from our own bodily sensations, the way that we experience our emotional life, not only in our minds, but physically in our bodies. By the way, if you listen to the show, you know that other than your brain, the part of your body that has the most neurons is your GI tract, right? Your stomach and intestines basically have a brain of their own and are intimately involved in emotional formation, even your microbiome, right? So when you're told to ignore that all the time, you get this psychosis. <laughs> uh, I got to a point in my faith uh, collapse and the corresponding grief where I was puzzled by, like, why, did, why does my body feel this way? Why does my stomach hurt a lot? 
Like the, the feelings of having emotions confused and frightened me. And the reason I went to see a therapist was like, hey, you've got to help me. My body keeps feeling weird. L- literally. Like I get like aches in my shoulders. I'm sleepy a lot. Uh, I have a lot of indigestion. But what's going on in your life? Well, I mean, nothing really. Uh, I mean, I decided God doesn't exist. And my parents are getting divorced. But that shouldn't have anything to do with my stomach. You see what I mean? So what I did in therapy over time was learn to be aware of and accepting non-judgmentally of my own bodily sensations and the way that related to my emotional life, a process that is still ongoing. I have tremendous jealousy for people who dance. I can't get past the like awkwardness of trying to embody a rhythm with my body. It just feels wrong. And like just the deep, like it was way easier for me to become affirming of same-sex marriage than to move my own hips on the one and the three, right? Like, it's just a weird thing. So, mystics reclaim a part of cognition that we've cast aside in the Enlightenment. We worship the left brain. Now, there's a right brain, left brain thing in popular culture that's bullshit. It's just, it's not a thing. Like, your right brain's creative and your left brain is analytical. That's not really true. Uh, What's different is the left brain takes things apart and the right brain looks at things holistically. And rationalism and the enlightenment is just like lifting up the left brain is the only valid way of thinking. Oddly enough, the road to spirituality tends to live where? Through holistic thinking. So mystics push back against this idea of rationalism and say some things we simply know through presence. And someone thinking rationally goes, well, that doesn't make any sense. And the mystics say, well, it doesn't have to. This, by the way, was one of the things that fueled the great schism, like the first big divorce in the church between the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, is the Greeks said, we invented logic. It's ours. Like, that's us. That's our baby. And it's blasphemous to try to apply it to the divine. Right? The, the divine may only be known through presence and experience. And the Roman Catholics are like, no, but you got to know what you know, what you know, what you know. <laughs> and that's like the, the mutual excommunication. That divide started there. So to me, when you read the Desert Fathers and Mothers, when you roll hard with Richard Rohr, what you're actually doing is returning to the most ancient expression of the Christian faith, which is embodied in the body. Where did the incarnation happen? God made what? Flesh. Yeah, mysticism. So how do you learn to do that? A posture of non-judgmentalism. A posture of grace towards yourself. A friend of mine was telling me a story. She's a female pastor. Her name is Sarah. She actually came up with the science mic name, which I'm not sure if I'm mad at her about or not. (laughs) And she told me about um, what it was like to be shamed for having a female body and be a minister by people in her denomination. Like it was just so intrinsic to our culture that bodies are bad, that bodies are evil, 
the best thing you can do is get out of your body to be close to God. But when God wanted to be with humanity, God didn't get out of a body. God got into one. Awesome question. Well, did I answer it? Okay, good. There's a thing. Like, lately, I'll answer a question back. That answer was really good. And someone would be like, you didn't answer my question. I'll be like, let's try again. Okay, thank you. Um, my name is Catherine. Um, my question is more on the faith side. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in John MacArthur's church. I went to his college. And then post all of that, I kind of have been going through my own deconstruction. Um, my question is, <laughs> how do you open dialogue about um, <clears throat> the validity of emotions and experience with people whose systematic theology is locked up so tight? Mm. And, you know, the scripture interprets scripture. and. Yeah. You know, there's an argument for everything. I mean, you know, so many of my friends are language majors and, you know, all of those kinds of things. I mean, that's everybody I grew up with. So do you have any tips for, like, opening that dialogue? Absolutely. (laughs) Yes, thank you. Great question. Uh, As you know, I'm incredibly popular with people who identify with terms like systematic theology. Uh, So I'm an expert. Uh, If you do it my way, you stay in the tradition and you start blogging heresy with no warning ahead of time. And it does provoke a lot of conversations. Uh, They aren't especially receptive, though. That's the problem, right? So your brain. I love brains. I love brain science. You've got a thing called an amygdala. If you listen to Ask Science Mike, you know the amygdala well. It's the part of the brain responsible for fear and anger. And if you're in an encounter with someone, and their amygdala turns on, we call that a state of arousal, it's a different arousal than the one you might be thinking of, your amygdala will mirror theirs, right? It's just like a natural human thing. We respond to someone else's amygdala. Now, it's not like amygdala have Wi-Fi. Um, Our facial expressions, our body posture, uh, our skin tone, all these things signal activity in the amygdala fear, and anger, but the amygdala is, oh, it's a hothouse. It uses a lot of energy, and our brains have a very strict energy budget. Literally, uh, brains can cook themselves if, they, if, you, if you use too many parts of your brain at once. That's why like, seizures can be really life-threatening. You overheat your brain. And your prefrontal cortex is like where your rational thought lives, where your analytical brain lives, um, and you don't have an energy budget to have your prefrontal cortex and your amygdala kind of running at the same time. It means you literally can't be analytical and angry simultaneously. You're trying to win, you're trying to save face, you're trying to defend yourself, but you sure as hell aren't learning, right? Now Twitter makes sense. (laughs) Like, (laughs) these people have been shouting at each other for four hours. Yeah, because they're social mammals terrified of losing status in their tribe. So the worst thing you can do with people is assume they're rational agents looking to be convinced with good information. That's not how human brains work at all. At all. What are human brains designed to do? Find food, find sex, find shelter, not get eaten. And because we're the most social of the primates, the main way we do that is focusing on our social standing, 
It means the main thing that drives our beliefs is social identity. So your friend who goes to a very conservative systematic theology seminary or church, it's going to be very hard to persuade. Why? Because they're going to believe what the people around them believe while convincing themselves that they came up with their positions through rational analysis. Your brain lies to you. It's what it does all the time. My Twitter bio says 86 billion neurons telling a story to themselves. We call that story consciousness. So how do you convince people with diametrically opposed viewpoints? One, you keep their amygdala off. I work really hard at this. I thought it'd be really fun with a new book out to make another post about um, uh, LGBTQ equality this morning. And uh, that's a great strategy. My publisher, I'm sure, is thrilled. And uh, a lot of people like came in that don't follow my work because it got shared so much. And some of them were really, really angry. So I banned them. And, um, but other people came in and they had questions, like honest questions that I could answer because I'm not gay and I'm not trans, right? So I was like just answering their questions, hoping it was going okay. And someone commented, like, wow, you have such patience. No, I don't. <laughs> but if I'm going to have a conversation, I wanted to do something, right? So what, I do, what do I do? I go, listen, I understand why you believe that, and it's reasonable. I, I actually give them social standing, right? Yeah. It's real tricky and manipulative, but it works. <laughs> so I start by giving them standing. But here's the thing, like, I used to hold their position. I had a friend in high school come to me and say that he was gay. And I told him I'd help him pray through that. That was me. I did that. It wasn't somebody else. So I understand that this is a journey for people. So I honor their journey. I create a sense of empathy instead of a sense of conflict. And then, this is the real kicker, I tell a story. I don't even try to like do the debate because like as soon as we're debating over like, well, scripture says this and da 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 da, yeah, you know what? I actually debate really effectively. But all I'm going to do is turn their amygdala on and they're not going to learn. So I tell them the stories of what this belief does to real people. And if possible, I use names. Because we're a storytelling animal, stories change our beliefs about things in a way rational argument does not. Make people feel comfortable, respect their position, even if it's nutty, and tell them a story. Repeat. That's the other thing. It, it will never happen in one conversation. Now, this has a cost. Okay? Ladies, women in the audience, have you ever had to try to explain to someone what mansplaining is? <laughs> How many times in a row do you do that before it's super old? Is it 0.02? Is it 2 of the especially generous, right? Like there's a cost in that approach. So we have this tendency to instead of follow Jesus, to try to be Jesus, to climb up on the cross ourselves on Golgotha and say, I can take on the sins of the world. I've tried it. You can't. One thing I'm learning a lot from uh, justice advocates I talk to is the vital importance of self-care. You can't help other people if you don't keep yourself 
healthy. So it's not your mission to reform organizations. It's your mission to live a life that leaves the world a bit better than you found it. That's it, right? Uh, now, if you feel some call to like go and do this grand, amazing thing, I'm so happy for you. Uh, I will retweet your work. <laughs> but I find that what I do is much more effective when I know exactly who I'm talking to. Who am I talking to with the Science Mike stuff? The spiritually homeless and frustrated. The people whose boxes have already fallen down. So if your boxes haven't fallen down, and you come on my Facebook page and want to debate me, I go, your boxes are all still fine. Um, you know, go check out so-and-so's page. Right? Like, <laughs> this is not a good place. You know what I mean? Like, it's just a waste of my time. It's a waste of their time. Like, I know every argument, every argument, every argument you're going to make about this lens of scripture. I already know. Like, actually, occasionally, if they give me a fresh argument, that's how you draw me. And I'm like, oh, I haven't heard that one. Like, that's fascinating. But I've heard them all. And so I don't have, like, the energy to get on the merry ground and just say the same things over and over. I'd much rather come hang out with you. I also think at some point uh, it's okay to set up boundaries and live your life. It's okay to move on. I mean, can you imagine, like, how I'd be doing if I still went to the same Southern Baptist Church every Sunday morning? Can you imagine? Would I have the emotional bandwidth to come be fully present with all of you? No, because I'd be backstage crying. <laughs> That's not hypothetical. That was happening when I first started this work, right? I was still going to Baptist church, and I would do events, and I would like be like trying to work through this week's trauma of so-and-so who told me my children will spend eternal conscious torment in hell because their father's beliefs have changed or whatever. And, oh, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. At some point, you just knock the dust off your sandals and you walked in the next town. Man, Jesus was a badass. Okay. Uh. <laughs> Hi, Mike. Uh, I have a science question for you. You had an experience where you heard God, mm. and you did an investigation on that. Mm-hmm. You talk, that about, talk about that in your book, which mm-hmm. everybody should buy. Uh, but I don't know if I've heard you say what you think scientifically that was. What would you say to a science friend <laughs> happened when you heard God, and how do you, as a scientist react when somebody says, I heard an audible voice. Not I felt it in my person, in my flesh, but I heard it. Really good question. I've researched it a lot. I have a brain cyst. I know that because I got a CAT scan. And I got a CAT scan because I heard God talk to me. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. I know exactly what causes this. Brain tumors. So I got, a, I got a CAT scan, they're like, you have a brain cyst, it's, a, it's a, a large normal cyst, I think was the classing, any bigger, and it's a small abnormal, and they go after it with a scalpel. So I'm just like, let's just keep it right there, brain cyst. <laughs> well, you and I, together forever, freak Astley, you know. Um, but it's nowhere near my auditory cortex or my temporal lobes. Huh. No brain tumor. Okay. Uh, Well, there's mental disorders that can cause those kinds of uh, conditions. So I went to a psychiatrist and took a full battery to see if I might be mentally ill. Um, And whatever I am, it's not diagnosable. 
so, boy, you know, I kept looking further and further. Like, I, the beach thing, I can find. That's out there. Uh, that's a pretty normal thing as people who think they've seen God go. Like, what happened to me on the beach, the bright light, the sense of love, that's all a well-understood neurological phenomenon. The audible voice thing is not. Um, now, the most amazing thing, and probably like the most amazing, not unamazing thing, but the, is I started writing and talking about all these scientists, and my platform got big enough, their books started selling more. And so then they, like, called me. So, like, I've talked to Andrew Newberg, who's, like, my favorite neuroscientist, who, like, came up with neurotheology as a discipline. And uh, he and I are going to have a conversation about that and record it. Um, so maybe he'll have an idea. Tanya Lerman, who I also talked to, she blurbed the book. She's an um, anthropologist at Stanford. <laughs> she talked to me on the phone for a couple hours. What a weird world. Uh, she has this theory that there's these things called sensory overrides that she came up with in conjunction with a neuroscientist. That you basically have a little piece of hardware in your brain whose job is to figure out uh, if right now is real or not. And if right now is not real, you're dreaming. So we should not move the legs for real. Because that could be really dangerous. And so she thinks when people have those kind of intense, she calls them sensory overrides, uh, that part of the brain identifies a mental phenomena as objectively real. It's like a, it's a mislabel. That is a hypothesis. That's not a tested thing. So the real answer? I have no idea. Uh, so here's things people say, I don't believe you. And I say, that's totally fair. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I wouldn't believe me either, right? It, it, and that's, that's kind of what I try to get at in the book. Like, as powerful as that experience was, it doesn't prove anything to someone else. And it really doesn't prove anything to me. Because there are natural, naturalistic phenomena that could explain that moment. Not with precision right now, but that doesn't mean forever. So, I just sit with it. I just sit with it. I don't, I, I, I've stopped trying to... It's an improper fraction right now. And I, I just leave it. I just leave it. I just view it as a gift. I mean, so in addition to writing that book, I, I tell that story on stage like every 30 minutes, right? Like constantly. And I still cry every time because that moment was so profound and so beautiful. And I'm not going to let my prefrontal surgeon cut it to pieces. That's mysticism. Mysticism is you have an experience and you sit with it. You embody it. You're grateful for it. I have had more freaky stuff happen <laughs> since that day on the beach, but I don't give it all away. Some of it I just sit with as a gift and a grace. And uh, it's incredibly unscientific on one level. On another level, brain scientists say it's absolutely the most authentic way to embody that brain state. So, hashtag neuroscience? I don't know. Yeah. Hi, Mike. David. Good to hey, see David. You. Uh, so, I had a question about artificial intelligence. Oh, um, yeah. So, on one of your previous uh, Ask Science Mike Lives, you gave an answer about that and directed listeners to the uh, Wait But Why articles on the subject. 
Yeah. Which I read and found fascinating, but also had an existential crisis after reading those. I should have that as like a Surgeon General's warning on the podcast. May cause existential crises. Yeah, exactly. Up until that point, I'd pretty much assumed I'll live to be 100, 120, barring some accident yes. uh, with natural progression. And uh-huh. after reading that article, came to the realization that by about 2040, the median scientists think will probably invent artificial general intelligence and very quickly thereafter invent artificial superintelligence, which will either be paradise or the end of the world. Uh, so my question is twofold. <laughs> One is, how viable do you think that is? And is there any new information in the last couple of years since that article came out that would speed up or slow down that timeline? And two, how have you grappled with the probability that this would happen in your lifetime and almost certainly in the lifetime of your children? Great question. <laughs> Who has any idea what we're talking about? <laughs> Who is so lost right now? That's what I wanted to Okay. You, my friends, are biological intelligences. Uh, Evolution has been goofing off for a while, uh, trying this very large brain primate thing. It's gone quite well, unless we destroy the planet. But um, so far, we make tools, we build large civilizations. Language, I like language, good gig. So it took a really long time for, you know, basic life, to develop into human intelligence. And scientists don't agree. We've had some new information the last few weeks that are really monkeying with the timeline of when life appeared on Earth. But we can say billions of years with confidence. Billions with a B. And then, in the 50s, we figured out how to make transistors think in very basic rudimentary forms. But uh, the pace of progress of information processing for artificial digital intelligence is way faster than what natural selection has been doing. And this has caused some people to freak out. Um, Because things we thought computers would maybe never do, they're doing. Uh, For example, oh, this would be really fun. You can say, hey, Siri, and people, oh, really disappointing. Usually at least three phones go, ding, um, but you're a smart crowd. Like computers are listening to us all the time, right? At home, like every morning I go, Alexa, what's the weather like today? And Alexa like tells me. I'm like, how about the news? And then she tells me this briefing, and I feel like, like I'm living in the future. And uh, but it's more than that. Like a computer, one chess became like the global grandmaster of chess, and then Jeopardy. Okay, that's when I was like, whoa, like a computer won Jeopardy? Watson. And now recently, uh, the computers won a game called Go. And Go is nutty because there are more possible plays in the game of Go than there are atoms in the universe. So computers are really good at chess. Why? Because they predict every possible move. That's kind of how they do Jeopardy. Like I do Ask Science Mike very similar to the way Watson plays Jeopardy. I just imagine every question you, you, you all might ask me and like come up with an answer and just memorize it. It's no big deal. <laughs> and AlphaGo required an intuitive piece of software. Or Go required AlphaGo, which is an intuitive piece of software. 
So what do we do if computers get as smart as us? Because at the slope of their development, they will not be as smart as us for very long. Uh, artificial intelligence researchers believe that potentially in a matter of days, there'll be a bigger difference between humans and AI as there is between humans and ants. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the right response to that piece of information. Like, what do you do with something that smart? Especially because, like, we kind of get biological intelligences. They all want the same stuff we do. They want some food. They want to replicate their DNA. They want to not get eaten. So, like, you meet a bear in the woods, you have a decent shot of not getting mauled if you play your cards right through, like, this evolutionary body language thing where it's like, hey, you're the big dominant predator, and I taste terrible. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, you just give this energy. You're not like, come on, bear. You know what I mean? Like, you know how to respond to a bear. But what, a computer's not have an amygdala. You know what I mean? Like, it's such an alien. So they'd not only be smarter than us, their desires. Could you even say they have desires? Their mission? We don't even have a language for what a computer may want to achieve, especially because we may have accidentally created that, right? So some dot-com company is working on AI in secret, and they're like, it's going to be amazing. We're going to make an AI that just makes people happy. It's going to like rescue the human race. We'll say, solve climate change and make us happy. And so, you know, it builds little nanorobots that one day we all fall down to the ground and stop polluting, and it just like tickles the pleasure center of our brain all the time, so we feel happy. And we just all are put in vats where we're happy all the time with no other cognitive experience. Paradise, right? <laughs> so this is one why Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk both agree we need like a, an international treaty on AI research. That's a thing. But here's the other thing. If there's one topic I'm actually qualified as a person to talk about, it's computer science. I'm, an, I'm a legit credentialed nerd. Like, I built large-scale systems for a living for most of my career. I've developed software. Uh, I know about large-scale networks. And I'm not as worried as many experts are because of Moore's Law. We have really, really uh, lost the ability to make Moore's Laws happen. So everyone's basing these assumptions on this ever-accelerating computer horsepower. But if you actually look at what's been happening with chips lately, that curve looks more like this. So you buy like a, f you're, you're, you're <laughs> what's Apple doing? They haven't updated the Mac in three years, right? Well, why would they? The new chips aren't really any faster. It's the problem we're facing. As we've made these features on microprocessors smaller and smaller, one, they're getting atom-sized, and two, they're too hot. They put out too much energy. So I think that some of like, you know, Kurzweil's assumptions about machine intelligence are based on a curve, a supply of information processing that doesn't exist anymore. And I also think we may fundamentally be misunderstanding cognition in and, and, and science. As we've looked through history, our, our, 
metaphors about consciousness tend to mirror our technology. Uh, so like in the Industrial Revolution, when everything was like powered by steam and hydraulic pressure, uh, people thought about the brain in terms of fluid dynamics, you know, like literally. Um, and now we're in the information era, so what do we think about the brain as? Information processing. But like your brain doesn't have a hard drive and a CPU and a graphics card and a network card. It just has neurons. And as far as we can tell, your neurons, there's not one neuron that processes and one that remembers. It's completely systemically dissimilar in that. It's, it's a holistic network. You don't store, process, retrieve information at all, which uh, this would be really fun if we wanted to. I could give out sheets of paper, and I could ask everyone to draw a $1 bill. And it's hilarious how, like you can picture a dollar bill right now, and you feel like it's photorealistic. But if you try to draw it, you're like, uh, well, there's a one, and there's some flowery stuff. I know Washington's in the middle. Which way does he face? Is he smiling? No, he had wooden teeth. So his lips are, you know what I mean? Like, you're not like dollar.jpg, go. Uh, so, <laughs> that was, that any of you got that, you are my people. Uh, so I also think the, we may fundamentally be overstating the capacity for our current machine architectures to develop into a consciousness, except I have been watching what IBM is doing with uh, neural net chips. My CPU is a neural net processor. Um, <laughs> so maybe IBM is making Skynet and I'm wrong. What do we do about it? Uh, I, would, I, would, I would lobby for governments to sign that treaty and uh, keep reading. There's so many things that could wipe out this species right now. We're in a real, like if, we, if, if, if humanity was uh, like one human, I feel like we're toddlers, like we finally learned to stand up, which is amazing, except the room is full of knives and shotguns. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's like, oh, what's this? Ah! Like I didn't know if I touched on my leg, it would lop it off right here. Lightsabers even. So climate change, real scary. We just passed 400 parts per million and stayed there in September. That hasn't happened ever with people on the globe, ever. The last time we had that much carbon in the air, there was no ice on the planet anywhere, which I don't know if you know this, homo sapiens, what's up y'all, that's us. We developed in an ice age. We're in an ice age right now. Why? Because the planet has ice on it. We've never lived in a hot earth scenario. Can we? I don't know. Nuclear weapons. Those are real freaky. Every year, the probability of annihilation via nuclear war is pretty low, but it's also higher than the chance of someone winning the lottery, but people win the lottery all the time. Why? Because a lot of people play the lottery, and there's a lot of years. So a small chance over time grows to an ever-increasing chance. 
if we have global nuclear war, we don't have to worry about climate change. <laughs> like, it's not going to matter, because we're definitely not going to be outputting any more carbon. Um, to me, this is a gospel issue. Didn't see that coming, did you? <laughs> to me, this is a gospel issue. What does it mean to be salt and light? What does that mean? Today, I think that means earth care, uh, stopping nuclear proliferation, lobbying the government, our government, which, by the way, has the second most nukes on the planet, to have less, ideally zero. Um, and, you know, so yeah, AI is, is there. I don't worry about AI nearly as much as climate change. Um, but we tend to, like, the church is like, what, what are we known for? Like, fight about <laughs> same-sex marriage and... Uh, just these really not existential to the species issues. But the problem is there are existential to the species issues right now. And I feel what the church should be known for. Like, why have we let the humanists become the ones who are for human flourishing? That was Jesus' gig. You know what I mean? He's like, you rich people in your palaces. Do you know how hard it's going to be for you to enter into the kingdom of heaven, right? You don't see what's happening to the least of these? Blessed are the poor. You guys aren't making it in the kingdom of heaven. We're all pretty rich in this room. So AI, global thermonuclear war, climate change, poverty, all these things to me are the modern embodiment of the teaching of a crazy Galilean from Nazareth who tried to knock a whole system down. Uh, we're supposed to be in that line of work. Thanks. Hi, Mike. Zachary here. Hey, Zachary. Um, so I didn't know who you were until like two weeks ago. And I'm sitting in my cubicle. Most people don't know who I am. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sitting in my cubicle at work. I've been pressured by my friend to listen to your story on the Literatures podcast. And then I'm listening to it, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. This is great stuff. And I'm thinking, i got to tell the guy in the cube next to me. <laughs> it, it, I don't tell him because I'm an introvert and stuff. Uh, but Joel, I'm really good friends with him. Okay. He knows a lot about my Joel stuff. Osteen? No. Oh, okay. Not, very not Joel Osteen. He's, uh, he's an atheist. Okay. Uh, and he, so I'll talk to him about all sorts of stuff. And I don't think... I'm at a point in my relationship with him where I can be on this high horse and be like, oh, I'm going to save you. But, like, he just seems like a really good guy that I care about. Yes. And I want to, you know, have spiritual deep conversations with him. I mean, Uh playing video games with him and stuff is fun. But you mentioned in an earlier answer to a question, like, you got to have people's boxes knocked down. And his clearly aren't. Uh-huh. So do I just need to detach from him? Like, be like, hey, well, I guess I just won't ever talk about anything deep with him. Okay. Or is there something I can do that's not going to be just like punching him in the face? Yeah, great question. I would start by not punching him in the face. <laughs> with the gospel, of course. With the gospel. I'm going to punch you with some Jesus. Um... That's not how I roll at all. Since I came back to faith, not only in God, but in Christ. 
something has been different. As a Southern Baptist, I was an evangelical. The purpose of my faith was proselytization. Did I say that right? Proselytize? Yeah, I did. Amazing. It's proselytization was telling other people the good news so they would not spend eternal conscious torment in hell. That was my game. It was real important. And I don't do that now. One, I don't have any idea what happens when people die. It would be really presumptuous for me to say, I got this figured out. Um, Now, do I have hopes about what happens when we die? Absolutely. Do I know what happens when we die? I don't have a clue. I haven't talked to anybody who's died. Um, Except Jesus. I was in a real good zone to take that answer, emotional. Okay. The only thing Jesus ever said to me was, I was there when you were eight, and I'm here now, and I forgot to ask him about the afterlife. So next time, next time, I'll get that info, and I'll let probably saw a lot of books, too. Uh, now if that happens, people are going to think it's a marketing thing. Oh, because this is recorded. I can't deny it. Anyway, what do you do with your friend? You don't knock his boxes over. Like, never be in the knocking people's boxes over business. That's terrible. I mean, unless people's boxes are, like, overtly oppressive to another person, unless someone's boxes involve active harm to another person, then absolutely say, hey, your box is terrible. Um, <laughs> But other than that, like, your atheist friend likes to work with you and play video games? Sounds awesome. (laughs) I like to work. I like to play video games. We have a bad reputation as Christians of being salespeople. And people are suspicious. Oh, you're a Christian. They're waiting for the pitch. They're just waiting. What's maybe the most powerful thing you can do is just be their friend. It's amazing. So I mentioned I don't proselytize anymore, and ironically, I have more conversations with people about Jesus than I ever have had in my life. In my life. On tour. I'll be in restaurants by myself. Talking to the server, talking to whoever. I don't guide the conversation to Jesus. They do. And I'm like, ah, you don't want to talk to me about Jesus. I'm weird. <laughs> like, I actively try to avoid it. And then they like, pull up a chair and sit at the table with me like, what do you mean you're weird? I'm like, well, I'm like a non-theistic mystic Jesus person. <laughs> like, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> and the only thing I can figure... I really love Jesus. It's maybe the most defining thing about me as a person. And it's so strange that people are curious about it. And so if people ask me, I'd love to talk about it. You may notice that when people ask questions on Ask Science Mike, say I'm an atheist, and I really want to talk about God, they just have a question about science. 
I generally just answer a question about science. I don't like sneak some Jesus in. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think we'll be a more powerful life-giving faith the day we stop making the main thing of our faith, trying to get other people to take on the same set of propositional ideas that we do. That instead, we become the good neighbor. Right? How do we love our neighbor as ourselves? Now, we read that story, and we think we're supposed to be the Samaritan. Right? That's probably not how Jesus' audience at the time read that story. They identified with either the man on the side of the road, remember they were living under Roman occupation, or they identified with the righteous who walked by. How often as a church are we the righteous people who walk by? We want to tell healthy people why they need Jesus, but we don't want to just pick up a broken person on the side of the road, clean their wounds, take them to an end, and say, their bill is on me, right? At no point did the Samaritan try to make the wounded man a Samaritan. And the biggest command, the biggest command Jesus ever gave us after loving God with everything we've got was to be a good neighbor. To go ye therefore means to go live lives of radical love, not lives of radical internet argument and debate. It's... Like, that's some enlightenment stuff that got onto the raft that didn't belong. It doesn't belong. So what I would say is you play video games, and you talk about what he wants to talk about, and you talk about things you love, and you just be like a normal person. And when something terrible happens in his life, you're the first one there to help. And by that... He will know who you are and who you follow. Oh, yeah, right on. Hey, Mike. My name is Will. Hey, Will. Um, So I uh, recently have been very curious learning about uh, social justice, social change in our country. And I think uh, what really jump-started it was the Black and White Racism in America podcast on the Liturgist. And recently, your uh, feminism podcast that just came out. Mm-hmm. Um, but in my delve into research, watching a lot of YouTube, reading a lot of articles, I found myself diametrically opposed to a lot of the extreme parts of these social movements. Like, I have empathy for the base ideas of like egalitarianism. Did I say that correctly? I'm not even sure. Uh, don't ask me. I say egalitarianism. Okay. <laughs> Make fun of it. Um, you know, just basic equal opportunity in our country, something I value strongly. But in engaging as a straight, white, cisgender male, I realize that in a lot of these circles, my opinion is not welcome or valued, even if I come from a place of empathy. And I wonder, what is the best way to engage with these groups if I truly do want to learn, but if I do have some sort of disagreement with parts of their cause, such as the way they operate? Uh, is my opinion from this people group, white male, valued and not welcome in the discussion? Or is there a way to be of some sort of value without being obtrusive or mansplaining? You know? Yeah. <laughs> Amazing question. Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. I also am a straight, white, cisgendered, middle-income guy. 
when I was born, I got a deck of cards, and they're all face cards, right? I got like, like I'm learning disabled, so I have a two, like one two of spades. I just don't deal that one. You know what I mean? But because I come from such a position of societal privilege, not only societal, biological privilege, privilege, <laughs> privilege. I don't know if you hear this amazing, rich baritone of a voice. <laughs> but human brains literally defer to the lowest pitch voice in the room. So when I wanted to talk at a meeting at work, I just dropped an octave and everyone was quiet. Right? Uh, people who are taller get paid more. Did you know that? Clean correlation between height and income. It's amazing. 6'1". I wish I was a little bit taller, but I'm doing okay. So my whole life, what have I expected? When I speak, people will what? Listen. Doesn't mean they have to agree with me. They just have to listen, then we can talk about why they're wrong. <laughs> so we make episode 20 of the Liturgist Podcast, LGBT. And we're real excited. We worked hard on it. We wanted to substantively move that conversation in the church. We poured our hearts into it. Not only our hearts, but man months of planning, recording, editing, poured our, our souls into this thing. And we were ready for the pushback from conservative people of faith. And instead, the pushback came from queer people of color who said, how are you going to have an episode about this movement that only has white people on it? And I said, well, that didn't occur to us, but we had good intention. <laughs> I gave a thumbs up, internet people. Um, what? What? They were right. They were right, but my instinct immediately was to justify myself and my position instead of listening to people who's lived experiences are not available to me. I will never know what it's like to sit in a room and be the only queer person of color in it. I will never know it. No amount of research, reading, rational analysis will put me into those shoes where I understand it. So what I've learned, that sometimes the best thing I can do to create justice is yield the floor. We thought about the woman episode of the Liturgist Podcast. Michael and I weren't even going to be on it. That was our original thought. And honestly, the, the women involved in the show were like, if you don't at least introduce it, a lot of people won't listen. So we were there literally as bus drivers. All aboard, everybody. And then we just drove the bus, right? <laughs> like we kept the wine flowing and um, <laughs> just recorded a great conversation. Sometimes the best thing for us to do is to just yield our position because the system is set up 
so no one can take it. No one can take my platform from me. I have to willingly and intentionally yield it. Do I agree with everything every justice advocate says? No. No. But I sure as hell want to understand why they believe it and what I might be missing from my position. And here's the other thing. Who made me Mr. Idea Policeman? Like, what if they think that and I don't and it just ends there? See what I mean? Like, what if we just, what if I don't even tell them I disagree? Because based on my position within the system, the minute I open my mouth, I bring a lot of stuff into the room that I don't see because it's invisible to me. It's invisible to me, but it's not invisible to them. This is why I'm so big on the tone of conversations. You can't isolate the systems people represent and embody. You can't isolate that from the conversation, even in the most trusted, close, personal relationship in the world, at the end of the day, I'm just a lot less likely to be shot by the police than my black friends. It's statistics. It's indisputable fact that I am safer in the presence of police than they are. So even though I'm from a law enforcement family, and even though I, I feel like I've known a lot of really good, decent, hardworking police officers, I have to understand that my perspective, which I view as neutral and unbiased, <laughs> might be loaded and I might slice the data with bias completely unintentionally. And I might need someone else to show me a different perspective. So maybe this might not be you, but what I found in my experience, notice what I did, I made sure your amygdala doesn't turn on. Um, <laughs> What I found in my experience is uh, sometimes all that's required of me is listening. And then the best thing I can do is translate that into language that other powerful, white, straight, cisgendered men of privilege can understand and relate to. The work of a translator. If you follow me, you know I'm a huge, huge fan of a man named Broderick Greer. And he always talks about how he's not interested in allies. He needs accomplices. An accomplice, if the crime leads to a conviction, goes to jail too. An ally says, well, we tried. I'm going to dinner. Uh, and I'm, just, I'm done trying to be an ally. The movement of a poor, brown-skinned Palestinian man who suffered under an oppressive, violent system of law and order compels me to believe that my life and my work is that none of us are free until all of us are. Hi. First, I would just want to say thank you for everything you do and having people like me just giving us a safe place to be okay with believing in God, but not being okay with a lot of other things about the church. So thank you. So I am, uh, another thing I want to thank you for is um, being very vocal about the need for um, mental health 
and uh, advocating for therapy. I'm uh, in grad school um, working towards uh, becoming a counselor myself. And I also have this crazy background of being a martial artist and training and, and teaching that. Well, that, no. <laughs> but now I'm in this new thing where I'm learning to be a pacifist. Uh, uh, okay. um, and where counseling and martial arts kind of are colliding in my mind and in my life is I'm doing a lot of research now showing this paradox where people are able to and are consistently gleaning therapeutic benefits from martial arts training and self-defense training, um, especially in, um, in terms of female empowerment um, and increasing self-efficacy beliefs and also even going as far as treating um, trauma mm-hmm. and trauma survivors. And so I guess I kind of wanted to bring that topic to you and hear your thoughts for me being trying to become a pacifist while also seeing this really remarkable research and this crazy thing where people are becoming healthier human beings and mitigating aggression through pretending how uh, learning how to fight. So. Ooh, okay. Uh, luckily, they call me Philosophy Mike, so. <laughs> First of all, I don't even know if I'm a pacifist or not. Like, I think I'm a pacifist. But then, if one of you started punching another one of you, I would come push you away. Right? That was a form of violence. And, and writ large, I don't know where, when that stops being a clean line. I don't know. But I don't think you're anywhere near that line. We are physical beings. Uh, one of the most powerful therapies for depression is walking. <laughs> Life is so dark. <laughs> like I just, I just feel like I'm in this darkness. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not my, be, being trite here. Like I've, I've struggled with depression in my life. And I, I just don't know if life is, has any meaning. Uh, I don't have any energy. I don't feel like doing anything. And then someone convinces me to like walk every day. And the studies are pretty conclusive. Like it has a positive therapeutic effect, walking. So now you're finding another thing that mock aggression is therapeutic to trauma. Uh, well, j- just because someone learns martial arts doesn't mean they're just going to start mugging people. Uh, from everything I understand, is actually martial arts, and I'm not a martial artist. I've been in one fight in my life, um, and I lost, even though the other person never joined the fight. <laughs> Side story, because it's hilarious. Seventh grade, I got my lunch tray. Walking to my table, the second least popular kid in the school. I was the most least, the least popular. He's second, so he, like his whole life is making me miserable. <laughs> so I walk by, he's sitting down, he's got real long arms. He reaches out and flips over my lunch tray and says something about my mom. So I have this like movie moment of just like the white hot fury right here. And I'm like, this ends today. <laughs> And, like, I ball my hand up into a fist. And I literally, like, pull back, like, really hard. Like, really pull my fist back and swing as hard as I can. He's sitting down at the table. Doesn't know this is coming. 
and I glance off his shoulder and completely miss him. At which point the entire cafeteria erupts in laughter and I didn't have any money to eat lunch. So I just sat at the table alone. So I'm probably a pacifist out of necessity. And uh, I had to make a joke to like stop the heartache in the room. Uh, I remember the question, that's great. Um, so martial arts teaches people to not have moments like mine. It's primarily defensive, uh, and it teaches people to respect the innate power their bodies have and the harm that it can visit. I don't see martial arts as incompatible with pacifism in any way, especially if it's helping people recover from trauma. So you, I have a really common trick in moral quandaries or philosophical problems. Jump to, pa not pacifism, jump to pragmatism. What's the pragmatic thing? These people aren't going to go get in fights. They're going to feel better. Go do it and be successful with it, right? Like there, there's, I feel like you're super, super good to go. I also think you're super thoughtful that you're even concerned about the potential of violence from people who've experienced trauma engaging in martial arts. We need more primates like you on the planet. Have you considered running for president? <laughs> Maybe even in 2016. Uh, I got a question about auto-suggestion and prayer. Okay. So I'm thinking about, um, you know, an experience I had about a year ago when I was having a really, you know, crappy day. And I remembered somebody telling me, like, hey, if you just, like, look in the mirror and smile for, like, two minutes and you hold that, you hold that smile for two minutes, you're actually going to walk out of there feeling, like, in a better mood. <laughs> and I'm wondering, you know, is there any science or is there any research around auto-suggestion or saying, hey, you're going to be okay or you're going to have a great day or I'm going to have a great day? And also... How is that different if you're an atheist, but you still pray? Is there a difference there, or is there a relationship? That's the question. Yeah, oh, amazing question. Uh, we are really suggestible. I have this thing in my life now where I go to rooms like this, and we sell all the tickets, but I go on Amazon, I'm like, why haven't I sold 100,000 books yet? <laughs> That's a real thing. That happens in my brain. Because I'm like, just like, I play it real cool. Like, I'm just here and I'm genuine, but I also have this like white hot overachiever thing. Like, I really should have been number one on Amazon for at least 30 weeks. And, but it, I actually like stress out about it. Like, I'm insufferable with my wife. Like, I come with all of y'all and I'm so present and I'm here and I go home and I'm like, Jenny. We gotta sell more books. And she's like, the publisher says things are fine. I was like, yeah, but there's other people selling more books than me. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, who is this JK Rowling? And <laughs> like, why is a screenplay such a big deal? And I use that trick. I, when I when I realize I'm like making myself miserable, even though I'm literally living a fantasy life right now, where I'm a published author who dropped out of college 
who hundreds of thousands of people listen to on the internet, who doesn't really get hate mail, just people like, hey, I really love your work. And when I get a two-star review on Amazon, people are like, I really think he's thoughtful and kind. <laughs> I just disagree with him on these things. Like, that's my life. And I get mad about it. So I do a trick. I read a, I read a study. Um, it's one thing to smile. Does this look like a real smile? No, it looks creepy. Because a real smile involves crow's feet, like this thing. So I literally, if I, if I can't get the zone, I go to a mirror and make sure I do a crow's feet smile. I just hold it for 45 seconds. Okay, you're like, this guy's real strange. It's science. It works. Like, I feel like my self-hostility just melt. I feel my sense of gratitude to, you know, hundreds of people a day who are buying that book. Hundreds. You know what I mean? Like every day, every single, that's crazy. Why am I not smiling more? And we can all do that. We can all take moments of intent to think positively. Now, does it work? It totally works. Uh, it's the secret. But the secret is not that the universe wants you to be happy. The secret is not that you name it and claim it and it's yours. The secret is, if you think about it enough, in a positive light, it becomes a neurocognitive suggestion, and then you subtly change your actions in ways that change your circumstances, right? So when I, writing a book is hard work. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. And I wanted to give up so many times, but I just kept thinking, this is going to happen. I'm going to get a book deal. And the book is going to go on shelves. And it's going to happen. And because I believed it was going to happen, when things happened that, like, objectively, it was time to give up, I didn't. I foolishly pressed on over and over and over. That's what's happening. So when people of faith, ask God for something over and over and over and over fervently, they change their brains. They change their brains. Whether or not God is a conscious being who listens or not, let's set that aside for right now. When you're asking God's for, God's for something, your brain is listening. I still do intercessory prayer all the time. Now, here's the kicker. It works for atheists, too. Pray to a God you don't believe in and do it often, tricks your brain exactly the same way. So it's not like a slam dunk theological issue. Luckily, I don't care about those. Um, what I care about is the way that faith becomes embodied. And uh, a prayer of gratitude, a smile, and asking for something you really want can work, just not for the reasons people usually say, probably. Ha-ha! <laughs> that was some legalese at the end of the answer. Okay. Hi. Hi. Thanks for coming to Nashville. Oh, it's my pleasure. So good. I love Nashville other than the traffic. That's fair. We would all agree. Um, so you... <laughs> <laughs> Traffic's terrible! 
So I've heard you talk in different interviews and in your book as well about um, leading your daughter to Christ as an atheist in the Southern Baptist Church. And I can only imagine that the last few years and your new understanding of God and um, your place in God's world has also affected the way that you talk to your kids about God. And um, I would just be curious, what has that looked like as, as you've been parenting and, and leading your family in this journey? How have those conversations changed and, and how do you talk with your girls now about mm-hmm. that? Okay, that's a really good question. Uh, that question happens at every event. So I, that probably needs to be like a liturgist podcast or something. Um, okay. Yeah. Michael, if you're listening... Uh, actually, you know what? We don't have to ask Michael. The guy who uh, makes sure we do everything is here, Mr. Corey Pig. <laughs> so, Corey, just make sure we do that. Uh, <laughs> it's the hardest job in the world, coordinating me and Michael Gunger. Oh, my gosh. I wouldn't do it. I tried. I failed. We didn't have podcasts for months. Um, so if I had little kids, which I don't anymore, I would tell them about a God who walked in a garden with Adam and Eve. Ooh, yeah, nice silence. I, I would tell them about that. I would tell them about a God who made the world by saying, let there be light. I would tell all those stories because it turns out they're neurologically appropriate for young children because young children don't understand abstractions. Uh, you, if you try to tell a three-year-old about democracy... Nope. But my three-year-old knew who Barack Obama was. And it actually was hilarious when, when Macy was quite small. Uh, she would come. She had only heard the name of Obama, but didn't know who that was. And so she would come running full speed at me and leap into the air and put her knee out to do like a flying knee wrestling move. And she would yell, a shade Obama. Like, like it was some. And people would come over and be like, and she's like, she doesn't know that's a real word. She just thinks it sounds amazing, which it does. Uh, but later, like, I was like, okay, it's not a shade Obama, it's Barack Obama, and this is, this is him, this is the person. And she got it. That's a president. What's a president? Well, he he's leads the whole country. Well, who's his boss? Like, well, because who's his boss? Well, we are. But like that, that's how we describe democracy, like the relationship between people. Same way with little kids, how do we describe God? Faces and relationships. What do kids need to know about God? God loves you. God loves you. God loves you and has a plan for your life. I'm kidding about that second part. <laughs> you ever seen the meme of the Christians? In the Colosseum with the lion, it says, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. (laughs) Oh, so good. Uh, So, no, it's just God loves you. Okay. Well, then kids get older, they ask more questions. And when they ask more questions, it's a sign that they're neurologically ready for new ideas, more advanced ideas about God. Right? Right? The Bible does this. Some of you have probably heard me do this, this speech, so I won't do the whole thing. But like, basically, the Bible is an evolving image 
from a god with a face towards a mystical god. It stops making sense, so God gets a face again through incarnation. And it worked so well, we killed God. <laughs> and that's a thing that happened. Are you denying the crucifixion? <laughs> so, God rose from the dead, called Elon Musk on a rocket ship, left the atmosphere, and then a mystical God returns, only now we're the temple. Oh, wait, not quite done. And then, actually, God's a trinity. Historically, that's an idea that had a beginning, right? So they have this new image, this, as I love so much, the new book, The Divine Dance, by Richard Rohr and Mike Morrell, that God exists as relationship. Okay, so, well, which one of those is the right God? Is it like the burning bush? Is it the pillar of fire? Is it the God of the Holy of Holies that emanated throughout all the earth but had a zip code? Because by the waters of Babylon, we laid down and wept for Zion because God can't hear us here. That's what that passage means. God had a zip code. If you couldn't dial a local area code, you couldn't talk to God. That's not how we think about God now. Which ones? Well, these are all metaphors that point us to an unspeakably beautiful reality we call God. So which one do you tell your kids about? The ones they're ready for. So after my kids said, but wait, if God walked in a garden, where is he now? Oh, they're ready for something new. Well, God is everywhere. Well, I can't see him. Well, first of all, don't use gender pronouns about God. <laughs> That's later. That's later. No, you can't see God. Uh, but you can. You can see God in a sunrise. You can see God in mom's smile because God is love. Right? So but then they get on and say, well, how do, you know, or, or I would say, and I believe. That's one of the first things they start saying, well, I believe, da, da, da. And eventually they say, well, does everybody believe that? No. What do other people believe? I start telling things other people believe. Well, why do they believe that? Well, their dad is science Mike, so I usually have an answer. Like for people that believe different things. But then how do you know you're right? That's where my 11-year-old is. It's not where my 9-year-old is. So my 11-year-old my and I talk about existentialism and empiricism <laughs> and just the whole ball of wax, buddy. The gloves are off. With a nine-year-old, we still talk a lot about God loves you, right? It requires a relationship built on trust, and it requires a desire to teach your children how to find a metaphor for God that fits them. But by letting that metaphor evolve, you actually prepare them better for a walk of faith. What do we do so often in the church? We give people training wheels that they are still using when they're 50. It is a strange image. Imagine a 50-year-old man with a Rolex in a, in, a, you know, in a blazer. I don't know why I went blazer. I love blazers. But he's wearing a blazer. 
You know what I mean? Like he's on his, he's on his guy's Bluetooth earpiece. Like he's that guy. And he's on like a little blue bicycle with training wheels and he's pedaling like this. It's an obscene image. And yet we tell people that one idea you heard about God when you were seven is the only right one. And then we wonder why no religious affiliation is the fastest growing faith in America. We gave people no choice but to reject God because we gave them a metaphor that didn't fit anymore. The best thing you can do for your kids is introduce them to the mystery of a God who meets us where we are over time. And in that process, sometimes what we once were so sure about falls away. But that doesn't mean God is gone. It only means that we're growing. My name is Ashley, and I am, I'm 32 years old, and I had this new kind of powerful experience happen in my life about three weeks ago where I, I've never, to this point in my life, witnessed anyone die. <laughs> and about three weeks ago, within five days of each other, um, I, I saw my grandfather and a good friend both take their last breath. So it was very powerful for me, and it brought out a lot of things. But one thing that it, that it highlighted was, at least in the circle of people um, that I live with, there was this huge emphasis put on interceding for these people, especially my friend who had cancer. And while that's great, and you talk about the, um, the positive effect of that, there was almost zero emphasis putting on actually walking beside her these people helping them. I mean, we all die. So actually helping her work through that process. And she ended up um, being very fearful and anxious toward the very end. And so I'm wondering if you could just talk about how we balance, how we can balance prayer and truly walking alongside someone who's dying. And, and maybe from a neurological perspective, what is the best way to do that? How do we walk alongside someone and, and help prepare them? Hmm. First of all, I'm sorry for your loss. Um, we are terrible at death in America, in the modern era. We treat death as a tragedy to be avoided at all cost, even though it is inevitable. So when people are ending the end of their life, we take them out of a comfortable environment, we put them in sterile rooms with harsh white lighting, we attach them to machines that beep constantly, we wake them up at regular intervals, and we fight like hell to make sure the only guarantee in life doesn't happen. Is it any wonder we have a strange relationship to people's passage? It has not always been this way. People used to die in their homes, surrounded by their families, in times of celebration, times of renewal. When my Mima died, the whole family gathered in this hospice room regularly and sang gospel hymns 
because she loved them. And maybe, maybe my favorite memory with my grandmother was sitting at the side of her bed for four hours holding her hand in silence. Science is pretty clear. When we pray for people, it doesn't have any measurable outcome on their recovery rates. That's, it's statistics. Now we can talk about methodological flaws or whatever, but right now studies pretty, not universally, a, a very significant majority show that these intense prayer chains don't have any effect on outcomes. That doesn't mean people who are being prayed for don't get better. They do. They just get better at about the same rate as people who aren't prayed for. Thank you for the laugh. <laughs> for me, prayer is about presence. Prayer is about communing with the source. And I rather enjoy life. But everything I've studied about death, I don't fear it at all. Neurologically speaking, it seems that for most people, it is the most peaceful, fulfilling moment of their lives. That as the brain begins to lose its supply of oxygen, that expensive amygdala is the first thing to go. Fear and anger disappear. Next, the parietal lobe, way up in the neocortex, responsible for your sense of physical place and presence, shuts down, and you feel detached from this world. And then your visual cortex loses its energy, and your aperture of vision moves from broad to a single point. Perhaps it even looks like the light at the end of a tunnel. Deeper into the brain is a structure called the hippocampus. It's responsible for your memories. And as your conscious awareness moves from the outside of the brain to the inward, you find yourself in the presence of the things in your life you thought of the most, therefore remember the most. Whatever happens after death, we know during death you are in the presence of your loved ones. Such a beautiful poetic experience that we all try so hard to avoid. What can we do neurologically speaking? Be present in the room. Assume people can hear us and feel us. When I die, I want my family to hold my hand. I don't want them to treat me like an unclean object of plague. I'd like hugs. I'd like someone to scratch my head. I'd like to hear people singing. I'd like to hear the voices of people I love. If my children are kind enough that they have grandchildren, I sure would like to hear those voices. So that's what I do for other people. I try with people I know well to do those things I knew that they loved. Someone once joked 
that I'm a freelance internet pastor. Um, which I really rebelled against until I realized that people who don't have a church very often reach out to me in a pastoral context. And so for friends who aren't churched and occasionally strangers, I get invited to the deathbeds of people. I ask them about that time when you were on vacation and something embarrassing happened. Or to the surviving spouse, tell me about when you fell in love. I do this in the presence of the one who is departing. Maybe someday we'll get smarter about carting the terminally ill into cold, sterile rooms. But until then, I think we should bring as much warmth and light and home into those spaces as humanly possible. And it's so terrible that when Greg edits this, there'll be a moment of silence and then do, 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 do. Grada. <laughs> <laughs> If you're listening out there, I'd love to see you on tour. Go to findinggodinthewaves.com slash tour. I'm going a lot of places. Hopefully one is near you. Also, I have a book out. It's called Finding God in the Waves. If you don't have it, I've heard it actually uh, gives you a healthier, wider smile. Um, <laughs> claim not evaluated by the FDA. And the, uh, I also need your questions. So if you can't come to a live event but want to ask me a question, that's okay. Go to AskScienceMike.com, and you can scroll down to the bottom. You can fill out a voice question. No, you can ask a voice question, or you can fill out a text question. You can also use the hashtag AskScienceMike on Twitter, YouTube, or Facebook, and we'll see it. And I want to thank all my patrons who make the show possible. Also, give me health insurance. I appreciate that a whole lot. And pay me money to work. The patrons actually pick the questions that make it on the show. So thank you for not only supporting the show, but doing my job for me. And the most amazing thing is at the end of the show, I thank some people. So Greg Nordine, I love you, buddy. Thank you so much for producing the show. Jeb Botterford, thank you for the theme song. But tonight, rather amazingly, Andrew Galucky is here. Right? So Andrew, yeah, come up. You're coming on stage. All the way on stage. And I need, yeah, love. Andrew picks all the questions that go on the show. Like, he's the one who digs through that incredible sifting pile of incoming questions. And the most amazing thing is, he emailed me out of the blue and said, how can I help? And then I said how he could help, and he just did it. And uh, the funniest thing to me about the whole show is people who are way too cool to ever talk to me, like not only listen, but offer to help. So Andrew is like an accomplished uh, singer-songwriter and musician and legit Nashville person and like lowers himself to this task of a nerd podcast. So Andrew, thank you so much. Uh, and uh, yeah. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I'll talk to you next week.